Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 26th program on man and woman. He created them, a theology of the body. The 133 catechesis given by Pope John Paul II between the years 1979 and 1984. We are indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose translation and edition we're using. The man of concupiscence. In our last reflection, we said that Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount directly refer to reductive desire, born immediately in the human heart. Indirectly, however, these words help us to understand a truth about man that is of universal importance. This truth about historical man, which is of universal importance and toward which Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, direct us, seems to be expressed in the biblical teaching about the threefold concupiscence. We are referring here to the concise statement of St. John's first letter, all that is in the world, the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world passes away with its concupiscence, but the one who does the will of God will remain in eternity. First John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It is evident that to understand these words, one must carefully take into account the context in which they are inserted, that is, in the context of Johannine theology as a whole, about which so much has been written. The same words, however, take their place in the context of the whole Bible. They belong to the whole of revealed truth about man and are important for the theology of the body. They do not explain concupiscence itself in its threefold form, because they seem to presuppose that the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life are in some way a clear and well-known concept. Yet they do explain the coming to be of the threefold concupiscence by indicating its origin, not from the Father, but from the world, the concupiscence of the flesh, and together with it, the concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life is in the world, and at the same time comes from the world, not as a fruit of the mystery of creation, but as a fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. See Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, in man's heart. What bears fruit in the threefold concupiscence is not the world created by God for man, whose underlying goodness we read about several times in Genesis chapter 1. God saw that it was good, that it was very good. In the threefold concupiscence, what bears fruit, by contrast, is the breaking of the first covenant with the Creator, with God Elohim, with God Yahweh. This covenant was broken in man's heart. Here, one would have to carry out a careful analysis of the events described in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. However, we are referring only in general to the mystery of sin, to the beginnings of human history. In fact, it is only as a consequence of sin, as a fruit of the breaking 
of the covenant with God in the human heart, in man's innermost being, that the world of Genesis became the world of the Johannine words. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the place and source of concupiscence. Thus the statement according to which concupiscence does not come from the Father, but from the world, seems to direct us once more to the biblical beginning. The coming to be of the threefold concupiscence presented by John finds in this beginning its first and fundamental clarification an explanation essential for the theology of the body. To understand this truth contained in Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, which is of universal importance for historical man, we must return once more to Genesis, linger once more on the threshold of the revelation of historical man. This is all the more necessary inasmuch as this threshold of the history of salvation proves to be, at the same time, a threshold of authentic human experiences, as we will point out in the following analyses. The same fundamental meanings that we drew from the foregoing analyses will come to life again as the constitutive elements of an adequate anthropology and a deep substratum of the theology of the body. The question may still be raised whether it is legitimate to transfer the typical contents of Johannine theology found in 1 John as a whole, especially 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, to the terrain of the Sermon on the Mount, according to Matthew, and specifically to Christ's statement taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We will return to this subject several times. Nevertheless, we appeal right away to the overall biblical context, to the whole of the truth about man that is revealed and expressed in it. It is precisely in the name of this truth that we attempt to achieve a thorough, in-depth understanding of the man whom Christ indicates in the text of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, namely, the man who looks at a woman to desire her. Is such a look, in the end, not explained by the fact that this man is precisely a man of desire, in the sense of First John, or rather, that both, namely, the man who looks to desire lustfully, and the woman who is the object of such a look, find themselves in the dimension of the threefold concupiscence that does not come from the Father, but from the world. One must, therefore, understand what that concupiscence is, or who that man of desire is, in order to discover the depth of the words of Christ, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 8, and to explain what their reference to the human heart means which is so important for the theology of the body, the meaning of original shame, casting doubt on the gift. Let us turn afresh 
to the Yahwist account, in which the same man, male and female, appears at the beginning as the man of original innocence, before original sin, and then as the one who has lost this innocence, by breaking the original covenant with his Creator. We do not intend in this place to carry out a complete analysis of the temptation and of sin according to the text of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 itself, the relevant teaching of the church and of theology. It should only be observed that the biblical description itself seems to highlight particularly the key moment in which, in man's heart, doubt is cast on the gift. The man who picks the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil makes, at the same time, a fundamental choice and carries it through against the will of the Creator, God Yahweh, by accepting the motivation suggested by the tempter. You will not die at all. Rather, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. According to some ancient translations, you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. This motivation clearly implies casting doubt on the gift and on love, from which creation takes its origin as gift. As for man, he receives the world as a gift, and at the same time, the image of God, that is, humanity itself, in all the truth of its male and female duality. It is enough to read carefully the whole passage of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, to grasp the mystery of man in it, who turns his back on the Father, even if we do not find this name of God in the account, by casting doubt in his heart on the deepest meaning of the gift, that is, on love as the specific motive of the creation and of the original covenant. See Genesis chapter 3 verse 5. Man turns his back on God, love, on the Father. He, in some sense, cast him from his heart. At the same time, therefore, he detaches his heart and cuts it off, as it were, from that which comes from the Father. In this way, what is left in him is what comes from the world. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they realized that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. This is the first sentence of the Yahwist account about man's situation after sin, and it shows the new state of human nature. Does not this sentence also suggest the beginning of concupiscence in man's heart? To answer this question more deeply and thoroughly, we cannot stop at that first sentence, but must reread the text as a whole. It is, however, worth recalling here what was said in the first analyses about the subject of shame as a limit experience. Remember Theology of the Body, number 11 through 13. Genesis refers to this experience to show the boundary that runs between man's state of original innocence, see especially Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, to which we devoted much attention in the foregoing analyses, and his state of sinfulness at the very beginning. While Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 underlines that they were naked but did not feel shame, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 
speaks explicitly about the birth of shame in connection with sin. That shame is, as it were, the first source of the manifestation of in man, in both the man and the woman, of what does not come from the Father, but from the world. And with these words, the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concludes his 26th catechesis on man and woman, he created them, a theology of the body. There are many salient points in this 26th catechesis. The Holy Father addresses concupiscence. The section is actually entitled, The Man of Concupiscence, which is a reference to all of us, concupere, to take to oneself, a consequence of original sin, a consequence of the fall. Pope John Paul II presents in this catechesis the threefold concupiscence found in St. John's first letter, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the concupiscence of the flesh, concupiscence of the eyes, and pride of life. Concupiscence of the flesh, sins of the flesh, tendency to sin with the flesh, not just gluttony or drunkenness, but even sexual sins. Concupiscence of the eyes, not to look at another with desire in the reductive way. We heard about that in the 25th Catechesis. But even coveting our neighbor's goods, our neighbor's three-story house, or foreign import car, stellar education, Often before something is stolen, it's desired with the eyes, coveted with the eyes. And then pride of life. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like these others we hear in the gospel. These are tendencies to sin. And they really cover just about everything. Our Lord encourages us, exhorts us, as does his vicar on earth, Pope John Paul II, who gave us these conferences, but now Benedict XVI, encourage us not to be men and women, not to be human beings of concupiscence, but to be saints, rejoicing in the good, rejoicing in the blessing of the other, proper stewardship of ourselves, of our bodies, of our wherewithal, of our eyes. Holy Father doesn't use the expression custody of the eyes, but it's very much a part of the equation. It's how we combat concupiscence, the tendency to sin, which is a consequence of original sin, of the fall. And since this threefold concupiscence is found in St. John's first letter, Pope John Paul II addresses Johannine theology, that theology, the science of God, based on the writings of St. John. So you have the fourth gospel and the three letters in the book of Revelation. What was God trying to tell us through these inspired writings of this inspired author? the beloved disciple, St. John, whose memory the church celebrates each year on December 27th, just after Christmas. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the high Johannine theology of Christ, the incarnate word, the word made flesh. The Father and I are one. Johannine theology, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Eucharistic Johannine theology. Our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, in his footnotes, cites so many of the different authors, the different sources, those who have written about what can be found in the writings attributed to St. John. So much has been written on Johannine theology, and the Holy Father makes his contribution. Here in this second chapter of Man and Woman, he created them a theology of the body. He does so in light of the Sermon on the Mount, however, 
which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, where the Lord is extending the Decalogue, not only not to commit adultery, but not to look with desire in the reductive sense upon the other. And our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, asks the question, is it legitimate to transfer the typical contents of Johannine theology in the first letter of St. John, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where we hear about the threefold concupiscence, to the terrain of the Sermon on the Mount, St. Matthew. That's his question. And I think it's very important that we answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, of course it's legitimate. And the Holy Father mentions as one reason why it is legitimate, why it is fine to juxtapose those two passages of sacred scripture because of the overall biblical context. First John is in the scripture and Matthew is in the scripture. The Holy Father is well aware that all of scripture is inspired by God and useful for correcting and teaching and rebuking and growing in holiness. And that's the only reason why he spoke these 133 conferences, that we might grow in holiness, not just of soul, but of body, the theology of the body. Another reason why it would be legitimate, why it is legitimate, to juxtapose these two passages of sacred scripture is because the primary author of all of the scripture is God. We profess in the creed to believe in the Holy Spirit who has spoken through the prophets and not just the prophets of the Old Testament, but all of Scripture. And in point of fact, when the Holy Father mentions the overall biblical context of the two passages, it's an allusion to the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation of the Second Vatican Council, Dei Verbum, which highlights that, among others. There are several things to take into consideration when we interpret the sacred scripture. And that's what Pope John Paul II is doing in so many of these conferences on the theology of the body. He's interpreting Jesus's interaction in the gospel with the Pharisees, whose wife will she be, not to look upon another with a reductive desire. In the beginning, it was not that way. It was because of the hardness of your heart. Those are three main passages of the Gospels, which our Holy Father builds his theology of the body upon. All of this theology is giving us the truth about ourselves, the truth about man. Christ the Lord came to teach us, to instruct us, to give us revelation not only about God, who is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal communion of eternal persons, but also the truth about ourselves, about original innocence, how we were made good. God saw all that he had created, and it was good. And about original sin, how our first parents ruptured the covenant, and we continually ourselves by our sins ruptured the covenant with God. The truth about man is also related to us in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, that famous preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the Redeemer of man, the Redeemer of the human race, the Redeemer of the world, the one only mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. He who laid down his life for love of us and for love of the Father, no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, and he did it for us while we were still yet at enmity with him and with each other and with ourselves. Pope John Paul II reminds us in this 26th catechesis on man and woman, he created them, a theology of the body, the specific motive of creation and the specific motive 
of the original covenant and the new covenant, I might add, is love. God, who is love, has as his motivation love, not a second-hand emotion. All apologies to Tina Turner. Love has everything to do with it, for God is love. Pope Benedict XVI, in his first encyclical, reminded the whole world of the same truth. Deus caritas est. God is love. One of the highlights of this 26th catechesis is again a deepening of the appreciation of what is shame, the meaning of original shame, how shame entered into the world with sin. In the beginning, they were naked without shame. But once the covenant had been broken by disobedience, by disregard for the holy law, the holy plan, the holy will of the all-holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, shame entered the world. And when we are shameless, it means that we disregard shame. Shame is good if we've done something shameful. We should feel ashamed if we've done something wicked, if we've done something terrible, sinful. But then we come before the Lord who was crucified and who died and who rose gloriously triumphant over the cross and sin in the grave for our salvation. And we say, Lord, have mercy. We well confess our sins and receive absolution and do the assigned penance to show the depth of our love for God and our repentance to show the depth of our gratitude for his mercy. When we sin, we cast doubt on the gift of God, the gift of his creation, the gift of his redemption, the gift of his divine providence governing the universe in that mysterious way which only he knows completely. In relation to this casting doubt on the gift of God, the gifts of God, Pope John Paul II is able to make a great distinction What comes from the Father? All that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful. That's what comes from the Father. Original innocence, original holiness, the original covenant, the new and the everlasting covenant, that all comes from the Father. What comes from the world? Shame, sin, death, despair. These are the anti-gift. These are the fruits of the rejection of the good gifts of the good God. What comes from the Father? What comes from the world? God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, created the world good. It is our sin which messed things up. And so in that light, Pope John Paul II addresses our situation, man's situation after sin. That's what we live. That's our reality. We live after the fall, but we also live after the redemption. Christ the Lord died once for all, and his saving death and resurrection is applied to us by his grace in the sacraments, by a life lived in communion with him in his church, the one he founded. Man's situation after sin, after the fall, is affected by concupiscence, that tendency to sin, to sin with our eyes, to sin with our bodies, to sin with our soul, the pride of life, that threefold concupiscence with which he began the catechesis. This is our situation after sin, after the sin we have inherited, original sin, and after the sins we commit, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
So our Holy Father speaks to us not only about doubt cast upon God's good gifts, what comes from the Father and what comes from the world. He speaks to us not only about our situation after sin, but he speaks to us about the new state of human nature. So when the philosophers of old wrote about the state of nature, they were doing what Pope John Paul II is doing here in this 26th catechesis on the theology of the body man and woman he created them but our holy father is giving us an adequate anthropology one which corresponds with reality which corresponds to the truth the truth will set you free and the truth about our human nature is that it is now a fallen nature and even if we have had the fruits of the redemption applied to us by means of the sacraments we still have that tendency to sin which is our lot, until we awaken to glory on that day with no end, which is life on high with Christ Jesus. This is our current state of our nature, which we all have in common. Every human being from the one just conceived in the womb until our last breath. This is a basis of solidarity, how we are to be concerned one for the other. The one who said, I am not my brother's keeper, rejected solidarity, rejected human nature, even though he lived within this new state of our nature, the fallen state. Our situation after sin, this new state of our nature, is the fruit of the birth of shame. Shame is born, shame is brought about as a consequence of sin, as a consequence of the fall. This, too, is part of the overall biblical context of St. John's first letter and the Sermon on the Mount. But so, too, is the glory, the glory of heaven revealed in the book of Revelation, the glory to be revealed when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Then God will be all in all. Pope John Paul II, in these 133 catechesis on the theology of the body, man and woman, he created them, focuses in his first three chapters, and we're in the midst of chapter two now, on three main passages of sacred scripture, and it's helpful for us to keep that in mind. He began with Matthew chapter 19, verses three through eight, when the Pharisees were asking him to explain to them about the original unity of man and woman, whose wife will she be? She married all seven. It was not that way in the beginning. Here we have the Holy Father commenting on those two verses from the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks with desire upon the other has committed fornication already in his heart. In chapter 3, we'll go to St. Matthew chapter 12. So in a certain sense, 19, 5, and 12. It's obviously not sequential, otherwise it'd be 5, 12, 19. But the Holy Father has a method to his presentation. It's good for us to follow his train of thought because he does what he does and did what he did in obedience to Christ who entrusted the keys to St. Peter. How many years ago? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The gates of hell will not prevail. When our Lord met with St. Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, who had not yet been converted to become Paul, said, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul was persecuting the church. He had letters to take into custody 
even women and children who had begun to follow the way, to follow Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. That's how personally Christ takes his relationship with his bride, Mother Church. We should take our relationship with Christ and with his bride the one church he founded so seriously. We should pray as he has commanded us to pray, do this in memory of me, for husbands and wives to exchange their holy vows in the setting of the prayer of the church, till death do they part, mirroring that love between Christ and his bride, the church. All of this and more, our saving faith, our life in Christ. Our next program will focus our attention with the Holy Father on our own alienation from God, from the origin and end of love, and the change in the meaning of original nakedness, meaning so important to say what we mean and to mean what we say and to do what has meaning, meaning unto life. Let our yes be yes and our no be no, for anything else is from the evil one, from the father of lies. The Lord calls us to holiness, and that means rejecting sin and Satan the glamour of evil, all these things by his grace and to his glory, now and forever. Amen. Until next time, God bless you.